This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to... Hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. Where the history is wacky and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian And Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. This is the final chapter of our Romanov saga. Can we call it a saga? I think so. Anyway, we have finally reached the end of our miniseries, Extravaganza, ending part four with the brutal murder of the Romanov family and their loyal servants. This episode will bring us all the way through to recent events regarding the Romanovs. This episode features a promo from the How Will I Die podcast, which can be found at the end, as usual. Make sure you stay tuned until the end of the episode. We'll be announcing our next topic due out on Saturday, November 2nd. Speaking of November 2nd, we'll be announcing our two giveaway winners when our next episode goes live, on social media and during the episode. So leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, even on Facebook, and send us a snapshot. You'll be entered to win some awesome-looking swag, if we do say so ourselves. We're not even a little bit biased. And we should have mentioned this in our previous episode, no purchase necessary to enter. Review, photo, send, entered. That's all. Easy. Okay, so follow us on Twitter at Dear Historians, on Instagram and Facebook at Outlandish Historians, or join our Facebook group, The Outlandish Parlor Room. You can also email us hello at dearworldlovehistory.com when you leave that review and take that photo. All right, then. We'll be picking up this episode right where we left off in the early morning hours of July 17, 1918. The murder of 11 people was complete. Now, all that was left for Yakov Yorovsky and his men to do was take the bodies out into Kaptyaki Forest and get rid of them. So what area of the forest fit the bill? A set of mine shafts 12 miles away from Ekaterinburg. It wasn't enough to murder them in cold blood and mutilate them in the process. The injustices continued. Around 6 in the morning, the soldiers laid out the bodies on the ground near the mine shaft and stripped them bare. Here again, Yorovsky stopped the men from pilfering the jewels sewn into the family's clothing. The men burned the clothing and anything else that wasn't considered valuable. Some of the men went so far as to touch Alexandra. We don't know if the Grand Duchesses and Anna Demidova were violated. Hopefully not. Seriously, hopefully not. There has to be a special place reserved for these guys somewhere. Then they threw the bodies down one of the mine shafts, but it wasn't deep enough. Sulfuric acid was thrown over the bodies to break them down faster and some grenades after that to destroy the shaft. But no luck. The bodies could still be found if someone went looking. Here's our question. If they're in the right, everything they've done would settle well with the Russian people and beyond. Why did they hide the bodies? Hmm. Interesting, right? A few days later, Yorovsky went back with more men to move the bodies to a better location. One where they couldn't be found. But they had to do it before the White Army Rescue Squad arrived, intent on freeing the Imperial family. While moving the bodies the truck got stuck. To save time, Yurovsky figured they'd bury them right then and there. They dug two graves, one for Nicholas, Alexandra, Olga, Tatiana, Anastasia, Anna Demidova, Dr. Bakin, Alexei Trup, Ivan Kharitonov, and one for Maria and Alexei. The bodies thrown into the larger grave, all on top of one another, were then covered with sulfuric acid once more. The grave was then covered up. As for Maria and Alexei, their bodies were burned, but only in part. Since their bodies were wet, they couldn't burn all the way, nor did Yorovsky have the time to wait. Whatever burning happened was good enough. Maria and Alexei were then thrown in their grave and buried as well. July 19, 1918, was the last time the Romanovs and their servants were seen for about 61 years. When the White Army finally reached Ekaterinburg and took the city, the first thing they did was burst into Ipatev House. They found an empty house except for the few knickknacks left behind, that had been cleaned, but even a deep clean couldn't remove the eerie feeling from that basement, or the dried blood on the floor, or the bullet holes in the wall. As we mentioned in part four, the family's dogs were killed as well, all except Alexei Spaniel. Joy was saved because he had run off as it all went down, then came back when it was over. Almost blind, he found a home with Colonel Paul Rodzianko, 
who took him to England with him. Joy lived out his days in comfort, though some think he never stopped missing Alexi. And we wouldn't be surprised. A dog's capacity for love is absolutely incredible. Now, the White Army did look for the Romanovs, but didn't find a thing. And is that surprising? They only had suspicions, strong ones that were right, but they had no idea where to start. Admiral Alexander Kolchak, the guy in charge of the white government, also known as the Supreme Ruler, had Nicholas Sokolov investigate the fate of Alexandra and her children. He was pretty sure that Nicholas was dead, but the big question remained. What happened to the others? When the snow finally melted in the spring, he went to Koptaki Forest to find out. Peasants had apparently seen guys wandering around the woods when Nicholas and the family were murdered. Plus, those darn tire tracks were still around. Yurovsky and his men weren't as incognito as they hoped. And so he found the mine shafts the bodies were originally thrown down, and got to work. Sidney Gibbs and Pierre Gilliard, the ever-dedicated family tutors, God love them, came to help. They actually made their way to Ekaterinburg as soon as they got word that the city was in the hands of the Whites. In the mineshaft, they found remnants of the family. The Bolsheviks either didn't think to get everything out of there or frankly didn't care. Among the items they found were Nicholas and Alexei's belt buckles, the corsets of the six murdered women, the emerald cross Maria Fyodorovna had given to Alexandra, buckles from the Grand Duchess's shoes, and Dr. Botkin's glasses. Oh, and some human bones. And Jemmy, Anastasia's dog. Seriously, there's a very, very special place for those Bolshevik soldiers. And it is not Disney World. Through his hard work and tenacity, Sokolov was able to find out the truth. Eleven people had been murdered. The entire Romanov family, gone. Their bodies disposed of. He thought they had been burned and their ashes thrown down into the mine. Pierre Gilliard was in shock. How could the children be dead as well? We can't even imagine what it was like to be Gilliard and Gibbs. They knew the family, cared for them, especially those kids. Sokolov boxed up all the evidence he had found. When Sokolov left Russia in 1919, he took his evidence with him. Until the bodies were later found, most people thought the family and their servants had in fact been burned to ash. But still, there were no bodies. No true evidence that the Romanovs were gone. So people started spreading rumors. They saw the family here. They saw the family there. Anastasia, Maria, and Alexei were favorites. They were popping up all over the place, apparently. Even peasant villages. And even worse, people were coming forward saying they actually were one of the lost imperial children. And how sensational for the public. And how heartbreaking for the remaining family who loved those children like their own. With the Romanov family dead and disposed of, Lenin's government began a game of back and forth with the foreign powers of Europe seeking to ensure the family's safety. In part four, we talked a bit about the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, the agreement that handed over a chunk of Russia and her people. And the Russian people were not happy about this, but apparently this wasn't enough to overthrow Lenin. Not on the scale of the March Revolution of 1917, but there was a civil war going on. Anyway, since Russia was no longer a war obstacle, Germany decided they could finally step in and try to get Alexandra and her family to safety. More so Alexandra and her daughters. In Kaiser Wilhelm's mind, they were always German princesses. I like the way he compartmentalizes. With the family dead, the new Russian government was tight-lipped about what happened. They didn't want the world to know that the entire family was dead. Again, if they're in the right and that's what the people wanted, why play fast and loose with the truth? Basically, the government was taking the line of, since the White Army was getting close, Nicholas was shot. But the rest of the family is just fine. They're safe. On July 20th, the newspapers Pravda, which means truth, and Izvestia, which means news, announced Nicholas's death in Moscow and Petrograd, a.k.a. St. Petersburg. Ex-Tsar shot at Ekaterinburg, death of Nicholas Romanov. Newspapers around the world started reporting after this. The New York Times published a story on July 22nd. Nicholas was dead and Alexandra and Alexei were okay. Interestingly enough, the Grand Duchesses weren't mentioned. Boom. The world started getting the news as well. Nicholas was dead, but the rest of the family was so-called safe. Soviet Moscow's pants were on fire. For eight years, liar liars, pants on fires. They kick-started the negotiation process for a bunch of people Moscow knew were dead. The Romanov's relatives were now trying to find out anything they could about the family. Nicholas was dead. Nothing could be done about that. But if the Zaritsa and the royal children were still alive, they had to get them out. Why the sudden change? Well, for one, Germany and Russia weren't at war anymore, and Nicholas's death really put things in perspective. They were imprisoned, sure, 
and there was always the thought that he might be killed, but it wasn't really a reality yet. But now it was. And if the rest of the family was still alive, then something had to be done. One of those, oh no, if only we'd known, we could have done something sooner moments. The public's reactions to Nicholas's murder was interesting. Outside of Russia, people could be quite meh about it. I mean, he wasn't their czar, and there was a war going on. So other things were a bit more important than some deposed ruler's death at the hands of his own people, which some thought was justified. The people of Russia had similar reactions as those outside of Russia, but thousands of Russian people also mourned their czar's death. They lit candles for him and his family, prayed for them. They'd had a czar longer than they'd been without one. And whether it was loyalty, love of Nicholas, or the shock of something so horrific that spurred this on, we don't know. So Germany wasn't happy with Nicholas's death and wanted information about Alexandra and her kids. There was no way Moscow was going to blink first. Sure thing, let's have a chat and really get into negotiations. Allowing family members to think that Alexandra and the children were still alive was above and beyond insane. Back and forth they went. We'll give you Alexandra and the kids if you give us Russian prisoners. The family's all good. We promise. They might even go to the Crimea. And wouldn't that be lovely? Okay, I'd trust them about as far as I could throw them. So why'd the Russian government do it? They were putting off any international outrage that might occur in regards to the murder of the Empress and her five children. Maybe they figured if it came out later, then people wouldn't be as mad. When it came to the reactions of the British, the government wasn't sure if they should make a public announcement. Why? Politics, yet again. What if we come out with it, condemning Nicholas's death and some of the British people think we're all for autocracy? But then, what if we don't say much about it and then people get mad because he was a British ally? Quite the tightrope. The government did eventually make the announcement, waiting just long enough to be sure Nicholas was actually dead. On July 24th, the British royal court went into official mourning for Nicholas. All members of the court were to wear mourning colors for four weeks. On August 14th, the court changed to half mourning, and then on August 21st, went out of mourning. Little did they know, they were also mourning Alexandra and the Russian royal children. The royal court of Denmark also went into official mourning, as did the court of Spain. So before the public was told, King George and Queen Mary were given the news first, of course. George and Nicholas were first cousins, and George did love Nikki. They were told the news on July 21st, and then had the task of passing it on to the Dowager Queen Alexandra, Nicholas's aunt, and Princess Victoria, Alexandra's sister. I can't even imagine getting that news and then having the responsibility of telling everyone else. Mary was saddened by the loss. She wrote as much in her diary, but George kept things close to the vest, even in his own diary, but he did write, It was a foul murder. I was devoted to Nikki, who was the kindest of men and a thorough gentleman, loved his country and his people. Subdued, but not surprising. Regardless, George felt Nicholas's loss keenly. All they knew was that Nicholas had been shot. The Russian government wouldn't release any additional information. In any case, George V and Queen Mary did go to the service held in memory of Nicholas. Memorial services were also held in the Russian church on the Rue de Rue in Paris, in Rome, Stockholm, Oslo, and The Hague. The British then set about trying to find out exactly what happened to the Empress and her children, though a report had already come through that the entire family was dead. Were they murdered as well? Still alive? Since there was no proof either way, dead or alive, family members kept hoping for the best. That Alexandra and her children were alive somewhere. What a wonderful thought. In comes King Alfonso of Spain once more. He wanted to get Alexandra and the children out of Russia, going as far as to offer them asylum in Spain. He even took it a step further, trying to get information on other Romanov relatives still trapped in Russia, intending to offer them safety as well, with no personal gain. It was all out of human concern for the welfare of others. It always had been for him. Alfonso even reached out to the British and German governments, figuring that they should work together to get the rest of the Romanov family out of Russia. Other countries were hoping for a favorable outcome as well, all supporting Alfonso's efforts. Go Alfonso! Seriously, he is a superstar. MVP right here. Maria Fyodorovna was still in Russia as well, with her daughters Olga and Xenia and their children. Maria was the sister of the Dowager Queen Alexandra, George V's mother, so she was definitely a priority. Even the Vatican was on board, lending support. It's a shame they didn't pull together before Nicholas's death. They might have prolonged all of their lives. 
As for the relatives still in Russia, Grand Dukes George, Dmitry, Nicholas, and Paul were locked up tight, imprisoned, and under guard. By the end of August 1918, there were rumors that the entire family was dead. The Daily Express published an article in September stating that Alexandra and the Grand Duchesses had been murdered as well. A few months later, a report was sent to Germany from Kiev. The entire family had been killed, not just Nicholas. And so family members started pointing fingers at each other, because that's useful. George at Wilhelm, if only the family's release had been a part of the Breslitovsk Treaty. Wilhelm at George, if only George hadn't sat about. Outside of the blame game, the one person that should be given all the high fives is King Alfonso of Spain. He never gave up trying to get the Romanovs to safety, even with the volatile political climate in his own country. It wasn't his fault that he couldn't save them. He did his best, but he still felt guilty. Take heart, King Alfonso. Nicholas and Alexandra knew he was trying. A note had been passed to them when they were in Tobolsk. And Alexandra's sister, Victoria, also knew he tried and was so beyond grateful to him for doing his best to save her family. Sadly, the main imperial family weren't the only ones murdered in 1918, nor were they the last. In fact, there were Romanovs who were killed before them. One of them was Grand Duke Nicholas Konstantinovich, aged 67, in February 1918. He wasn't even living in Russia anymore. We're not sure how he died, only that the Bolsheviks were responsible. Then we have Mikhail, Michael, Nicholas's younger brother. He was the second to be killed. After six months of imprisonment in a hotel, he and Brian Johnson, his British secretary, were taken into the countryside on July 13, 1918. Brian was shot in the head first, then Michael was shot three times while running toward Brian. He was 39. After the Imperial family was murdered, not even a full day went by before the Bolsheviks came after more Romanovs. They captured Grand Duchess Elizabeth, a.k.a. Ella, age 54, Alexandra's sister, a Romanov by marriage, not even by blood. Grand Duke Sergei Mikhailovich, age 49, Prince John, 32, Prince Constantine, 27, and Prince Igor, 24. So Prince John, Prince Constantine, and Prince Igor were the sons of Grand Duke Constantine. And Prince Vladimir Palais, 21, the son of Nicholas's uncle, Grand Duke Paul. There are a few different theories regarding what happened to these six people. Based on evidence pieced together by Vladimir Soliviev, the most recent theory is that the Romanovs were driven into the country and shot in the head before falling down a mine shaft. Then there are the four Grand Dukes we previously mentioned. Dmitry Konstantinovich, age 58, George, Georgi Mikhailovich, 55, Paul, Pavel Alexandrovich, 58, and Nicholas, Nikolai Mikhailovich, 59, who were killed on January 28, 1919. A firing squad at the Peter and Paul Fortress was their grisly end. The Bolsheviks continued systematically hunting the Romanovs down. When all the blood and mayhem was over and done with, the peoples left standing were the Dowager Empress Maria, 12 Grand Duchesses, there were originally 17, including Olga and Xenia, Nicholas's sisters, and 8 Grand Dukes, out of 16, including Nicholas Nikolaevich and his brother Peter. That was it. And four of those people weren't Romanovs by blood. They had married into the Romanov family, having zero to do with the bloodline when before there were what? Like a hundred Romanovs running around? The Romanovs who were still alive kept their heads down and hid until April 1919, when the HMS Marlborough, a British warship, showed up in Yalta, ready to give the Dowager Empress and the rest of the Romanovs a lift out of Russia. Any servants who wanted to come with were allowed on board. In fact, that was Maria's stipulation. She didn't go unless her family and her servants could come too. Bye-bye, Russia. They'll never see you again. What was left of the Romanovs made their way to separate corners of the world. Maria went back to Denmark. Her nephew was King Christian X. Xenia, after living in Denmark with her mother for some time, moved to London, where she lived without her husband, in a house called Wilderness House, which was paid for by the crown. The British crown, that is. She lived there from 1936 until her death in 1960. She was 85. Olga, on the other hand, waited until after World War II to move to Canada from Denmark, where she and her husband lived for the rest of their lives. As a widow, she shared an apartment with a Russian couple in Toronto. Olga passed away in November of 1960, seven months after Xenia, age 78. The Dowager Empress Maria might be the saddest account of them all, by far. She died in 1928 at the age of 80. From the time the rumors and confirmation surfaced to the time of her death, Maria refused to accept that her beloved Nikki and his entire family was dead. Not her Nikki. 
It was willful denial. But honestly, can you blame her? Yeah, I mean, there's one account we read where she lit a candle in her window in Denmark so that Nicholas could find her. I mean, true or not, who knows, but it does paint quite the sad picture and it really does show off how devastated she was uh, by, you know, his loss that she was denying. But in 2006, the Dowager Empress Maria Fyodorovna, wife of Alexander III and mother of Nicholas II, did return to Russia to be laid to rest with her husband at the Peter and Paul Cathedral in St. Petersburg. So, Sokolov. The guy who tried to figure out what happened to the Romanov family left Russia with all his evidence. He wrote and published a book in 1924 in French titled Enquête judiciaire sur l'assassinat de la famille impériale, aka for all of us who do not speak French, Judicial Inquiry into the Assassination of the Russian Imperial Family. He talked about his evidence, eyewitness accounts, and even had photographs in the book. It was all about how the family was eliminated and disposed of. Sokolov died of a heart attack at the age of 42, only months after the book was published. As a result of this book, the Soviet government finally had to tell the truth. In 1926, it did just that. It only took them eight years, I mean honestly. By this point, Lenin was dead and Joseph Stalin was the head honcho of Soviet Russia. Should have kept the monarchy. Seriously, you thought Lenin was bad. Stalin is just an absolute treat in comparison. Anyway, so what happened to Ipotev House after its special purpose was done? It became a museum. What else could be more natural for the site of a heinous murder? It actually went through quite a few different iterations. Museum of the Revolution, a meeting place for the Council of Atheist Society, the Regional Party Archive. There were posters all over the place praising the awesomeness of communism. It was propaganda, of course, proof that the Soviet state was so much better off than it was under Nicholas. But... A room on the upper floor was like a clipping from Romanov life. Pages from Nicholas's and Alexandra's diaries were on display, complimenting the lovely newspaper articles that proclaimed Nicholas was dead. Execution of Nicholas, the bloody crown murderer, shot without bourgeois formalities, but in accordance with our new democratic principles. Democratic. Interesting word for an interesting government. People came and ogled and left. All very macabre, if you ask us. But the cellar where the family was murdered was off-limits. It was a storage place. Guess it would have been more realistic if people actually got to stand in the same room the Romanovs and their servants died in. Let's not make things too real, guys. So in July 1977, the government had Ipotev House destroyed. Couldn't have people going there who were team monarchy. Best to get it gone. As for Ekaterinburg, the city was renamed to Sverdlovsk in 1924. When Soviet Russia fell in 1991, the city was once more known as Ekaterinburg. So Alexander Evdonian, a native of Ekaterinburg, to avoid any confusion, we're going to keep referring to Ekaterinburg as Ekaterinburg, even though it was called Sverdlovsk at this point, was interested in the Romanov family and their murder. So what makes this so weird? Well, he was born in 1932, quite a bit after the family was killed. It was Soviet Russia, so it was dangerous to ask questions. And most people were too scared to actually share what they knew, and he was a geologist. But he forged ahead. Going to Ipotev House, talking to family members connected to that fateful night in 1918, a guard's niece, an executioner's son, as well as people who helped Sokolov during his hunt for the truth. In 1977, Evdonia Migeli Rabov, who was a famous filmmaker, he first arrived in Ekaterinburg in 1976 to present his 10-part series, The Birth of the Revolution, which was all about the MVD, the Soviet police, actual police. Do not confuse these guys with the KGB. While in the city, he visited Ipotev House, more importantly, the cellar, and was moved, inspired, as it were, to tell the Romanov family's story. They wanted to find the family's remains, to save them. If Ipotev House was torn down, the remains could also be disappeared. Rabov basically tricked Moscow into giving him access to secret files and books. You go, dude. This included Sokolov's book, which the Russian people weren't allowed to read. Then he took his information back to Ekaterinburg so he and Evdonin could look for the graves. Fun fact, Yurovsky's son actually gave Rabov a copy of Yurovsky's report. This report was all about the murder and what came after. Why? To atone for his father's actions. Using the research and powers of deduction and Yurovsky's report, which conveniently had an X to mark the spot, Avdonin and Rabov located the grave in May 1979. On May 30th, these two men were the first to lay eyes on the Romanovs and their household since their burial. 
They, along with their wives, Galina and Margaret, Avdonian's geologist friend, Vasiliev, and Rabib's army friend, Pisotsky, pulled out the three skulls. They put the grave back the way they found it after spending a few hours digging and examining. Ryabov took two of the skulls with him to Moscow. His goal was to secretly have forensic tests done on the skulls. No dice. After a year, he returned to Ekaterinburg with the skulls. He and Evdonian took all three skulls back out to Kaptyaki Forest in a wooden box and reburied them in the mass grave. Why rebury? Why not share the news of their find? Well, it was Soviet Russia. And who knew what would be done to the remains? or to Avdonian and Ryabov, if they went public. Ipatev House had only been destroyed a few years before this, so they kept it a secret. When the Soviet Union fell, it was finally time to reveal the location of the Romanovs' family's graves. The Romanovs could truly be brought back into the light. Gorbachev was out, and Boris Yeltsin was in as the Russian president. Funny, though, isn't it? The Romanov reign lasted 300 years, while the Soviets were in charge for 74. They literally couldn't even make it to three-quarters of a century. To the quarter quell. Right? Anyway, Evdonian asked Ekaterinburg officials to open the grave and get the Romanovs out. After getting the nod from Yeltsin, a large group set out for the grave site. This included Dr. Ludmila Kuryakova, who was not a fan of the lack of tools they'd be using. There was a military presence guarding the site, with a fence set up around the perimeter, a tent over the grave due to the rain, and cameras that recorded all the goings-on. And then they started digging. With spades. Sounds high-tech, right? The excavators first found the box with the skulls before finally coming upon the rest of the bones. Luckily, the bones weren't as bad off as they could have been, since there was clay in the soil. This kept them a bit, uh, fresher for lack of a better word. In addition to the bones, they also found 14 bullets. The most surprising thing the team found during their dig was that only nine bodies were in that grave, which meant there were still two bodies that needed to be found. Then it was time for Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Vladislav Plaxian to authenticate the bones. So he sent Sergei Abramov, his best forensic anthropologist, to Ekaterinburg to put the family and household back together. About 700 bones in all. This took three months, and there were still plenty of missing bones. Well, back to the drawing board. Out went a team to the mass grave to find more bones, and find them they did, about 250 of them. Abramov had to treat the identification of the remains like a game. Is it Nicholas? Let me compare and contrast to photos, do some math, and futz about on a computer to figure it out. They couldn't do DNA testing because they couldn't afford it. So they took videos of the skulls and then tried to mix and match the skulls to the correct identity. Were they the Romanovs? Yes. Which ones were they? Insert shrug here. Bakken was the easy one. He only had lower teeth. Boom. One identity down. The Grand Duchesses were the hardest. They had similar features and weren't that far apart in age. He was sure he had Tatiana, Olga, and Anastasia, so the missing Grand Duchess could only be Maria. And since the body of a young boy wasn't found, that meant Alexei was the other missing Romanov. On July 25, 1992, forensic anthropologist Dr. William Maples reached Ekaterinburg with his team. He was over the moon about assisting with the identification of the Romanovs. He did this pretty quickly and then was ready to leave. Why? Because he and his team, like his Russian counterpart, Dr. Abramov, weren't allowed to document any of their work. No notes, no pictures, nothing. So he was ready to peace out, but the Russians were like, dude, no, you can't leave yet. Go have lunch and we'll figure it out. Apparently, that's all it took. When Dr. Maples and his team came back from lunch, they were able to take photos to their heart's content. They stayed for a week to make sure everything was documented, but the man and his team were so skilled that it took them a few hours to identify all the bodies and match their identities, for the most part. For the American team, their easiest finding was Alexandra, also because of her teeth. She'd had work done on her teeth that at the same time was being done in the United States and Germany. None of them were American, and she was the only German. Survey says, Empress Alexandra. Their findings corroborated Dr. Abramos. Well, all but one. Dr. Maples and his team believed that Olga, Tatiana, and Maria had been found, and that Anastasia was still missing. They believed that none of the bones were young enough for a 17-year-old girl. And speaking of, where were the missing children? At that point, they still didn't know. They hadn't found a second grave. So how was this settled, especially after Dr. Maples told the press the missing Grand Duchess was Anastasia? Dr. Abramov, on Maples' recommendation, called in Professor Richard Helmer, president of the Craniofacial Identification Group of the International Association of Forensic Sciences. Professor Helmer came to the same conclusion as Dr. Abramov. Anastasia was present, and Maria was missing. 
With all this said and done, what was left to do? DNA testing, one of the most conclusive tests that could be done to determine whether or not the Romanovs were in fact the Romanovs. Sure, it was all pretty conclusive, but identification takes time and scientists always want to be 100% sure, especially when it's something as important as the murdered imperial family. Everyone wanted to have no doubts, including Russia. But Russia didn't have the tech, money, or resources, so they had to outsource it to the British. First, they needed to determine that a family was in fact found and not a bunch of random strangers in a mass grave with matching bullet holes and bayonet stabs. You know, could be a coincidence that a whole bunch of other people were killed in the same way. Then they could go about finding living relatives to take samples from to determine if the family was in fact the Romanovs. On September 15, 1992, Dr. Pavel Ivanov came to England with the imperial bones. Ivanov and Peter Gill then spent 10 months comparing and contrasting DNA samples of the living and dead to get some answers. First confirmation, gender. It all matched up correctly. Second confirmation, were some of these people related? Sure were, and who were missing? Third confirmation, was one a papa and the others his kids? Yes and yes. Was one the mama? Indeed she was. The next step was to truly identify them. For this, they needed the mitochondrial DNA, which goes beyond the initial DNA testing that took place which also meant they had finally come to the point where they were needing living relatives to chip in with their own DNA. First up was Prince Philip, Queen Elizabeth's husband and the Duke of Edinburgh. He was also Alexandra's grandnephew. His DNA was used to identify Alexandra and three of her girls. Identifying Nicholas as Nicholas was a lot harder. It took them a while to find someone to match the DNA to. For a second, Ivanov thought they could match the DNA to Grand Duke George, Nicholas's brother who died before Alexei was even born. But Russia said no. Breaking open the tomb to get to George and then reinterring him cost too much. Think of something else. Someone did step forward willing to pay the bill, but Ivanov had a light bulb moment. Nicholas was in Japan once and wounded by a Japanese dude with a sword. A handkerchief was used to soak up that blood from Nicholas's forehead, and said handkerchief was conveniently sitting in a Japanese museum in a box, almost like it was faded. Kudos, Dr. Ivanov, for thinking of something so brilliant. The money that was going to be used to break George out of his tomb was instead used to send Ivanov to Japan. He took a piece of the handkerchief home with him, but alas, too many people had touched the material by that point. It was a great idea, though, but Ivanov wasn't giving up. Nicholas's sister had two boys, and one of them was in Toronto. Tikhon Kolikovsky was the only nephew Nicholas had who was still alive. They reached out to him, asked if he'd donate his DNA, and he said, No. It wasn't going to happen. Okay, then, back to the drawing board. All wasn't lost. The genealogists decided to take a different rune when looking for a match. They took another look at Nicholas's closest female relatives and had a Yahtzee moment. The great-great-granddaughter of Dowager Empress Maria would work wonderfully. Basically, it goes like this. Maria had a daughter named Xenia, Nicholas's sister. Xenia had a daughter, Irina. Irina then had a daughter, also named Irina, because that wasn't going to get confusing at all. And then the second Irina had a daughter named Xenia, who was more than willing to help. She sent her blood off pronto. But just in case, there was a second relative whose blood could match. Who was it, you ask? Well, time to snuggle into your blanket and get comfy. It's time for a story. Once upon a time, a German princess named Louise of Hesse-Cassel married the Danish king Christian IX. They had six children three boys, and three girls. One of the girls, Dagmar, married Alexander III of Russia, becoming Maria Fyodorovna and the loving mother of Nicholas II of Russia. Louise and Christian's eldest daughter, however, married the future King Edward VII of Britain and later became Queen Alexandra. Lots of marriages going on. Stick with us. Alexandra had a daughter, Louise, who ended up married to the very first Duke of Fife. This marriage produced a daughter, Maud, who then had a son, James George Alexander Bannerman Carnegie, 3rd Duke of Fife, Earl of Macduff, and Lord Carnegie. Whew, what a name and title sheet. Say that one five times fast. Anyway, James was the great-great-grandson of Queen Alexandra of Britain and a distant cousin of Nicholas II. James had a stipulation. He'd give his blood for testing only, and this is a big one, only, if it would all be kept under wraps. He didn't want the attention. Unfortunately, as happens with all secrets, his identity was revealed. Sorry, James. At least Gil and Ivanov tried. Now, on to the good stuff. Xenia's DNA was a 100% match when compared to James's, but when compared to the DNA from the Tsar, nope. There was a mismatch of one stinking letter. So, of course, the scientists tried the test again and came back with a perfect match. 
How could that happen? Well, the obvious answer is that Nicholas had two sets of mitochondrial DNA. Was that not what you were thinking? This is a super rare condition known as heteroplasmy. The discovery was more than a little nerve-wracking. You know, I might look at this from the perspective of, wow, dude, they discovered something neat about Nicholas and his DNA. Awesome. But Gil and the rest of his team looked at it like the piece in a Jenga puzzle that might topple the whole thing over. How was he supposed to get up in front of other people and say, without a doubt, that the body in question could be identified as Nicholas II? Simple answer? He didn't. On July 10, 1993, Gil and Ivanov gathered in London at a conference held by the Forensic Science Service to talk about their findings. When it came time to talk about Nicholas, they explained that they were 98.5% sure of his identity. The 1.5% gap had to do with the heteroplasmy and accounting for the chance that the double set of DNA found wasn't a mutation, but an error. So really, they were certain, but they had to factor in the anomaly. A big round of applause for Peter Gill and Pavel Ivanov. The bodies of Nicholas, his family, and their household had been identified. But remember, that's only nine of the 11 bodies. Two of the children were still missing. There have been more than a handful of people walking around on all sides of the world claiming to be Romanov. Sometimes the entire family was supposedly seen, but usually it was something like Nicholas strolling the streets of London or Rome. Mostly, though, it was people pretending to be one of the children. There was a guy in Scottsdale, Arizona, claiming to be Alexei. In Siberia, there was a woman in the 20s who said she was Anastasia. She went from prison to prison for the rest of her life and then died in a mental asylum. To her last day, she insisted she was the Grand Duchess. There was a super isolated village in the Ural Mountains where the people swore up and down that Maria and Anastasia sought refuge there and became nuns, living the rest of their lives in constant fear. The women died in 1964. There was a fellow who had been a prisoner in the Gulag claiming to be Alexei. He's an interesting case because he knew more about the imperial family and their entire lifestyle than he should have. While there were many questions surrounding him, he was clearly an imposter. So many different stories. Okay, there was a woman claiming to be Olga, supposedly living in Italy off the kindness of the Pope and the ex-Kaiser. Tatiana was apparently shaking her hips in Constantinople before marrying a British officer. Oh, and she was a prostitute. And Maria, after escaping Ipative House, made her way to Romania, where she got married and had a son who was a little bit crazy and dubbed himself His Imperial and Royal Highness, Hereditary Grand Duke and Zadievich of Russia, King of Ukraine, and Grand Duke of Kiev. This guy's name was Alex Bremer. Okay, Alex, whatever you say. He was going by the name of Alexis Danjou de Bourbon Conde Romanov Dilgoriki. I don't think he knew which royal family he wanted to be a part of. Now, it's an interesting commentary on society that so many people came out of the woodwork to make a name for themselves on the blood and bones of the imperial family. And I'm sure they didn't think of it that way, but damn, that is cold, okay? And honestly, it's downright cruel. Their aunts and some of their cousins who knew them were still alive when all of this was going on. What's more interesting is how people reacted to these imposters. I'm sure deep down they knew... But it's the hope, the fantasy that the Imperial family wasn't massacred and were out there living their lives somewhere. If only. Out of all the imposters popping up like weeds, there were two in the U.S. who stood apart from the rest. Oddly enough, they cropped up around the same time. Move aside, people. We're among royalty. Alexei and Anastasia are in the house. Except not really, but you get it. Since their stories aren't really intertwined, we're going to talk about Alexei's imposter first and then Anastasia's. So in the late 1950s, a man who claimed to be in the Soviet bloc National Intelligence Service made contact with the FBI, wanting to help the U.S. government. And he did. For two years, he gave information to the CIA until he supposedly became compromised. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Michael Golanievsky of the Polish Military Intelligence Division. When he came to the U.S., he revealed his so-called true identity. Michael was an alias. He was actually Alexei Romanov. So his story goes like this. He lived because Yurovsky helped him and his family escape. The family then lived in Poland, where Alexandra died in 1924. Nicholas apparently sent Anastasia to the U.S. for money. Why the U.S.? Who was giving them money? Or did Nicholas start banking with the U.S. banks while he was the czar? And the bank was also in Detroit, of all places. I mean, seriously. Anyway, she never came back. Tatiana and Olga made their way to Germany while Nicholas, Maria, and Alexei stayed in Poland. He started working in Polish intelligence in 1945, and Nicholas died in 1952. But apparently, all of his sisters were alive and well in 1961 when Michael came to the U.S. Oh, and he was ready for all the family money to be delivered into his hands. Okay, makes sense. 
Now, while Michael did have hemophilia, according to him, anyway, a doctor in Brooklyn said he had it, there was a little problem concerning his age. Michael was 18 years younger than he should have been. Alexi was born in 1904. Had he lived, he would have been 57. Michael admitted he was born in 1922, making him 39. So, (laughs) not only was he too young, he wouldn't have even been alive when the family was murdered. But sure, he's Alexi. He was violent and had a really shitty temper, like a child. Golanievsky shunned all the people in his life, and this only got worse when the imperial family, all the way down to Alexei, were canonized by the Russian Orthodox Church abroad. Only the dead can be canonized. So Michael threw a temper tantrum. The world was working against him. Insert ridiculous paranoia here. He was the Zedevich, damn it. Address him as highness. My god, what a child. After that, he disappeared. It was later written in a Polish newspaper that Michael died on July 12, 1993, in New York. The CIA, on the other hand, never knew what happened to Michael once they parted ways. And that is the end of Alexei's imposter. On to Eugenia Smith, the Anastasia imposter who came on the scene around the same time as the fake Alexei. She was an interesting creature, to be sure. In the very beginning, she didn't say she was Anastasia. Instead, she told others she was Anastasia's friend. But later on, she changed her tune and then became Anastasia. Here's some backstory. After getting out of Ekaterinburg, she married a Croatian dude and had a kid, but the kid soon died. Then she went to America on her own, and her marriage ended a few years after that. She got her U.S. citizenship and moved in with a wealthy woman by the name of Mrs. William Emery in Chicago, who believed to the very core of her being that Eugenia was Anastasia. Eugenia didn't look anything like the Grand Duchess, but she knew things. When interviewed by a magazine before her book came out... She did write a book about her being Anastasia. We're really not sure if this book was ever actually published, though. The polygraph expert was sure he was speaking with Anastasia. But the real test was her family. Anastasia's cousin, Princess Nina Georgievna Chavchavadze, met with Eugenia and said the woman was without a doubt an imposter. The princess was a pretty solid expert since she'd known Anastasia well. And then Tatiana Botkin, the daughter of the murdered Dr. Eugene Botkin, read the book. There were a ton of things Eugenia got wrong. Tatiana wasn't convinced. And so her story quickly fell apart. Her so-called husband was tracked down in Croatia, and he was shocked. Who is this Eugenia Smith? I've been married once and only once to the woman who sleeps beside me every night. All right, so Eugenia's marriage was a lie. Is it really shocking that her entire story was as well? She did meet Michael Golanievsky once. She claimed he was her brother. But when people were like, uh, miss, not really Anastasia, didn't you say in your book you were the one and only to get out alive? She changed her mind. Michael was not Alexei. Who is that masked man? So, was she Anastasia? Nope. All right, so you might be thinking, ladies, where the hell is Anna Anderson, the most famous imposter of them all? We were saving the best for last. It's time to talk about her and all the controversy surrounding this woman. She came on the scene back in 1920 after jumping off a bridge in Berlin. When she was taken to the hospital, there was no way to put a name to her face. When they asked her who she was, she wouldn't say a thing. Once she was well enough, she was taken to Daldorf Mental Asylum under the name Fraulein Unbekannt, meaning Miss Unknown. Eventually, she started talking again, and then in 1921, she saw a picture of Anastasia in a magazine. Boom. That was it. She identified herself as the Grand Duchess. It went a little something like this. Hey, nurse, do I look like her? Yeah, I guess. Sort of. Oh, okay, good. That's who I am. I'm Anastasia. She claimed that she survived the massacre in the basement of Ipatev House because a soldier and his brother took her home with them. All of them, including the soldier's mother and sister, left Ekaterinburg. After that, she married the man who saved her and became known as Mrs. Tchaikovsky. No one has ever been able to track down this family. And believe us, people tried for years, sifting through records and everything. There is no record of them, nor were there any guards at Ipatev House known by this name. In 1922, family members started coming around, trying to figure out if this was their Anastasia. Princess Irene of Prussia, Anastasia's aunt, was the first to show up. She knew instantly that that wasn't her niece. A few years later, Crown Princess Cecily came to take a peek. She wasn't really sure. At first she thought, no. But then she started going back and forth. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. Mm. Princess Irene's son, Prince Sigismund, sent the woman a list of questions only his cousin would know the answer to. He was sure the woman was Anastasia when he got the answers back. After all, if she wasn't, how would she know the secrets kept between him and Anastasia? Secret inside kids things? But he didn't actually clap eyes on her. And that's really how a lot of the family encounters went. Some believed her, some didn't, but it really makes one wonder. 
How could she know things only Anastasia was supposed to know? Of the immediate family, only Grand Duchess Olga, Nikki's youngest sister, wanted to meet Mrs. Tchaikovsky. Dowager Empress Maria and Grand Duchess Ksenia were adamantly against it. Ksenia and Olga had their hopes raised so many times, their hearts ripped out over and over when they thought they might have their Anastasia back, or as they called her endearingly, my Anastasia. And that is, that's how they referred to the girls. My Anastasia, my Tatiana, my Olga. And each time, their hopes were crushed. But Olga couldn't give up. She asked Pierre Gilliard to go and check to see if her Malinka, okay, that's another um, term of endearment that they used for Anastasia. They used to call her Maya Malinka, my little one, had come back to her. He went to check and Olga eventually came to Berlin as well. At first, she was sure this woman had some of the same habits as Anastasia. But later, years later, she was much less positive. In the end, there were only two Romanovs who believed this woman's claim. The first was Grand Duke Andrew, Nicholas's first cousin. The second was Princess Ksenia of Russia, Anastasia's cousin, who was two years younger. Dowager Empress Maria wanted nothing to do with the imposter. Earlier, we mentioned that Alexei's imposter was a violent man. We're really not sure, but is this a requirement? Because Mrs. Tchaikovsky was kind of... Nah, scratch that. Kind of. We mean she was a major bitch. She threw fits, ignored people, and was especially nasty to the people who were kind enough to lend a hand. She didn't speak a lick of English or Russian, which is kind of strange since Anastasia spoke both fluently. German was the only language this woman spoke. How could this be? Some thought this was caused by brain damage. Others thought it was due to psychological damage from being kept as a prisoner. The woman said she could never speak Russian again because of all the shit she went through, especially in Ekaterinburg. Then there's the more simpler answer. Lady didn't speak a lick of Russian because she didn't know how. Then in March 1927, a newspaper in Berlin printed that the woman's name wasn't Anastasia Romanov of Russia, but Franciska Shanskowska of Poland. This name wasn't just pulled out of thin air, but from a woman named Doria Wingender, who had seen the imposter a few years before when she came back to the village for a short time. While there, Francesca left some clothing behind, clothing that had actually been purchased for her by one of the Russian families she had stayed with, a baron and his baroness. When Mrs. Tchaikovsky moved to America, she first moved in with Princess Xenia, Anastasia's cousin. But things grew tense, and she was eventually moved into a hotel where Anna Anderson was born. When checking in, that's the name she checked in under. Things really went downhill from there for Anna. This is where her temper came into play. At one point, she got undressed and ran around on a roof naked. She was violent towards the servants. She was abusive and not someone you wanted to be around. So, of course, to the insane asylum she went by order of the court. Unfortunately, she got out after a year. In 1932, she left the country to go to Germany. If only she'd stayed. She was constantly under watch by a nurse during the journey. When she arrived in Germany, she received an additional six months of treatment. And all of this was paid for by Annie B. Jennings, whose house Anna had been staying at before she was committed. Seriously, what a nice woman. I would not have been that nice. In Europe, Anna lived with her 60 cats. Not kidding. Until July 13, 1968, when she packed her things and flew to the U.S. to stay with Dr. John Manahan, a friend of Glev Botkin, Dr. Botkin's son. A few months later, those two crazy kids were married. Heavy on the crazy. They were... Unconventional is such a kind word for what their marriage was like. And that's Dr. Manahan and Anna, not Gleb and Anna. Yes, no, no, no. Sorry about that. All right, so Manahan believed the CIA, KGB, and MI6 were all watching them because, obviously, those agencies didn't have anything better to do. At one point, Manahan told people that Anna could trace her lineage back to Genghis Khan. So not only was she Anastasia Romanov, but she was also related to Genghis Khan. Man. What a history this woman had. Seriously, who was next? Attila the Hun? I don't know that she could go that far. You never know. They were crazy. And on the other hand, said such awful things about what was done to the imperial family at Ipatev House. They were a match made in some kind of asylum. Okay? Back to the mental ward it was. Anna was locked away in November 1983, but fear not. Her husband broke her out only days later. They were soon stopped by the cops and Anna was returned to her straitjacket. She died on February 12, 1984, under the legal name of Anastasia Anderson. Her husband died six years after her. So was she Anastasia? Short answer, she most definitely was not. 
And the way they were able to prove that was through a test. Back in 1979, Anna had a portion of her intestine removed. The hospital where this procedure was performed, following protocol, held on to a tissue sample. When the sample was discovered, it's an understatement to say people went nuts over it. The discovery came after Dr. William Maples revealed in 1992 that he believed the missing daughter was Anastasia. When the sample was discovered, it's an understatement to say people went nuts over it. The discovery came after Dr. William Maples revealed in 1992 that he believed the missing daughter was Anastasia. People started fighting over who was going to perform the tests, which lab was going to carry the prestige of either proving Anastasia had escaped or proving that Anna Anderson was a phony who gave hope and heartache to the people who knew and loved Anastasia Romanoff. The legal battle for this issue didn't end until 1994. Ridiculous, right? I mean, honestly, at that point, it wasn't about getting an answer. It was about the press and attention. And that's completely nauseating. In the end, the tissue sample was sent to England to be tested by Peter Gill, and he sent the samples to two other scientists to confirm his results. Susan Barrett from the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology and Dr. Mark Stoneking at Penn State. In October 1994, Dr. Peter Gill and his colleague, Dr. Kevin Sullivan, explained to all in attendance how they had reached their final conclusion. Basically, they compared the DNA from the tissue sample to the DNA extracted from Nicholas and Alexandra's bones and Prince Philip's DNA as well. No match. No relation to the imperial family. Then, Anna's DNA was compared to that of a man named Karl Malcher, the grandnephew of Franciska Shenskovska. Can you believe it? A 100% match. So, who was Franciska Shenskovska? A loner. A jerk from the beginning. She'd had enough of her small Polish town and left for Berlin, where she met a man and got engaged. Unfortunately, he died during World War I. After that, due to her mistake, there was an accident at the weapons factory she worked at that resulted in her being injured and a man dying. She lost it after that, and never found it again. She was in and out of asylum several times before she fell off the map and took on the persona of Anastasia. Even after Ipatev House was destroyed, people kept coming. It was still a memorial site for some to come to and remember what had been done, but other traditions had also been established. For instance, newlyweds would come to the site for photographs and leave flowers. I think of this the way I think of the people who dive down to get married on the Titanic. It's a grave, guys. It's a grave. But the space didn't stay empty for long. There was a project in mind. The Ekaterinburg Archbishop believed Ipatev House was, quote, the place where the suffering of the Russian people began. He wanted a cathedral built to purify Russia of the heinous acts done under the Soviets. The cathedral was eventually built and named as the archbishop had proposed. The Cathedral on Spilled Blood. Sounds cheery, right? The funny thing about the people of Ekaterinburg is that while they wanted to cleanse and all that, they also wanted to make sure the bones of the imperial family stayed in their city. I'm sorry, but no. They were imprisoned and murdered. The people of Ekaterinburg hated them. Their bodies were disfigured and hidden from the world like the dirty secret their murders were. Kept in Ekaterinburg? No, you don't get to murder them, keep their bodies, and then make money off of them when the tourists start rolling in. Fuck no. While the men who were involved in the murder of the imperial family weren't punished by Lenin's regime, and why would they be when the regime was all for it, that doesn't mean they didn't get what was coming to them. You gotta love karma. In 1918, Stepan Vaganov was murdered by peasants because of his involvement in the oppression of the people. In 1919, Pavel Medvedev was caught and questioned by the White Army. He swore up and down he didn't help kill the Russian royal family. He died of typhus while he was in prison. Yakov Svidlov died of the flu in 1919. He was the guy aiming to be the head honcho after Lenin. Peter Voikov was killed in July 1927 in Warsaw, Poland, by a Russian monarchist. Joseph Stalin had Filip Gilashoykin killed in 1941. Who knows why? Could be because the man was a bisexual. Could be because Stalin didn't like how the man cut his beard that day. You never know with a paranoid madman. Then there was Yakov Yurovsky. Unfortunately, a stomach ulcer killed him before a bullet could. But we take comfort in the fact that Stalin was coming for him. And that's the only time we'll ever say that about Stalin. For part of Yurovsky's life, he was treated like a leper. And more unfortunate than him getting what he deserved, he died proud of what he had done. To the very end, he remained loyal to the Bolshevik cause. For the past 75 years, we've had a bunch of crazy people running around declaring themselves the rightful rulers of Russia. Except there is no Imperial Russia anymore, so they don't actually have anything to rule over. But, okay. The Romanov family divided into five branches. The Mikhailovichi, the Vladimirovichi, the Pavlovichi, the Konstantinovichi, and the Nikolaevichi. The Mikhailovichi are the closest relation to Nicholas II. 
The branch is made up of Nicholas's sisters and their children and their children's children, and so on. The Vladimirovichi were the second closest relatives to Nicholas II. This branch of the family was made up of Nicholas's cousins, his first cousins specifically. Then the Nikolaevichi were based around Grand Duke Nicholas Nikolaevich. Not as closely related, but Nicholas Nikolaevich was a good man, and he wanted nothing to do with the imperial throne, non-existent or otherwise. He always had the Dowager Empress in mind. Remember, she was in extreme denial about Nicholas's death, and since Nicholas wasn't dead, no one could be Tsar but Nicholas. And everyone who was left made up the other two branches. None of our research really made it clear who made up these subclans. Sorry, guys. What's super important to note about these branches is how much infighting there was. One branch didn't like another branch, so they wouldn't attend the same event or something as equally absurd. It's absolutely ridiculous. One guy, usually from the Vladimirovichi subclan, was trying to set himself above the others. Honestly, think of that crazy family member who gets drunk at all the family functions and multiply that by, like, 50. And that makes up the entire family. Also, Grand Duchess Maria is the curatrix of the imperial throne, because her dad said so, made a decree and everything. And we're not fans of her, honestly. She's petulant and goes around denying that other Romanov families are actually Romanovs. Um, you know, even when they have closer blood ties to Nicholas than she does. Cue eye roll here. Seriously, it's disgusting. Many of these family members were more than willing to step away and live a quiet life with zero crowns and jewels. And then here come their kids who demand that they are princes and princesses. Like, no, it honest to God doesn't work that way. Fun fact, the rest of the family actually looked to Prince Nicholas Romanov as the head of the Romanov family, when he was alive anyway. Not Maria, not her dad, not her grandfather. And he didn't think claiming the throne was the most important thing ever. Like the Dowager Empress, he thought the people should decide what kind of government they wanted, and who they wanted to be in charge of it. Uh, Something Adrian and I have been talking about is that no matter how much fighting there is between all the branches, most people don't even know they exist. How many of you knew of these family subclans before this episode? Because we sure as hell didn't know about any of it until our research. And while we were learning about them, there were moments when we wanted to hit our heads on the wall because... Really? Claiming a long-forgotten throne is the most important thing you have going on in your life? In the words of Ronald Weasley, you need to sort out your priorities. 104 years had passed since the Tsar had been buried. Alexander III was buried in 1894. It wasn't until July 17, 1998, that the imperial family was finally laid to rest. The ceremony also marked 80 years since the family was massacred. Dr. Eugene Botkin, age 53, Alexei Trup, 62, Ivan Kharitanov, 45-46, we're not sure of the exact age, and Anna Demidova, age 40, were buried with the family at the Cathedral of St. Peter and Paul in St. Petersburg. This was a bittersweet occasion. The family had come home where they would once again rest together. Then, after the servants, Olga Nikolaevna, age 22, Tatiana Nikolaevna, age 21, and Anastasia Nikolaevna, 17, were lowered into the tomb after the ever-loyal members of their household, followed by the Tsaritsa Alexandra Fyodorovna, age 46. The last to be lowered into the vault was Tsar Nikolai Alexandrovich Romanov, age 50. When Nicholas was lowered, a 19-gun salute was fired. It would have been 21 if he hadn't abdicated. Note, the British royal family was represented on this day by Prince Michael of Kent. While this was going on, however, there was also a lot of politicking going on. As we mentioned before, the Russian Orthodox Church abroad had canonized the imperial family years ago as martyred saints. Now it was the Russian Orthodox Church's turn. Sainthood or no sainthood? That was the question. Two years passed before the family was finally granted their sainthood in 2000. Passion bearers, which is the lowest level of sainthood. There was a lot of time and investigative power directed at this decision. The church wanted to make sure the family met all the criteria. They didn't just want to hand over such a thing. They even made the decision against it once, but continued looking until they found what they needed. At least we can say that. The church never gave up. Unfortunately, Trup, Botkin, Demidova, and Kharitanov were not declared saints. They didn't do anything special in the eyes of the Orthodox Church in Russia. They did their job, nothing more or less. We disagree with that wholeheartedly because everyone else left. And they stayed, out of love and loyalty, but, you know. At least the Orthodox Church outside of Russia did canonize them with the rest of the family. You know, so there is that. But what's unfortunate is that Alexei and Maria were still missing, 
at that time. The family was incomplete, separated. In July 2007, goodness, what a popular month, Sergei Plotnikov happened upon the gravesite of the missing children. An accident, a miracle, fate, whatever you want to call it, the last of the Romanovs were finally found. It wasn't strange for him to spend his spare time looking for them in Kaptiaki Forest, since he wanted to reunite the children with their family. Not far from where the rest of the family was found, Plotnikov uncovered bone fragments. After some more digging and DNA tests, it was confirmed that Alexei and Maria had been found. And they have yet to be buried. We don't know why, but it's been 12 years since Zarevich Alexei Nikolaevich, age 13, and Maria Nikolaevna, age 19, were found. They should be resting with their family. Instead, they're being held somewhere, we're really not sure where. Until 2015, they were in some box in Moscow State Archive waiting for someone to get their shit in gear. Mostly the Russian Orthodox Church. They refuse to bury. All the tests that have been done over the years prove that Maria and Alexei are Maria and Alexei, but the church wants to be 2,000% sure. So when will they finally be laid to rest with their family? We really don't know. But hopefully it will be soon, because they deserve to finally truly rest in peace and be reunited. Honestly, I just, I don't know what the hell they're waiting for. Like, are they trying to capitalize on more attention surrounding this? Like, I I just don't understand. No, from everything that I've read, the church literally is like, no, we don't think that you're right. Or, you know, maybe your DNA test is kind of slightly off. It's for whatever reason, it's because they already canonized them that now they're like having a heart attack about declaring Maria and Alexi as Maria and Alexi. So, you know, they need the scientists to do every test over and over. And their their bones have been tested multiple times since 2007. Alexandra and Nicholas were actually exhumed in 2015 for additional tests against um, other family members. And I believe they also tested them against Maria and Alexei. But for whatever reason, like none of the tests that have been done are good enough for the church. Are they waiting for some super high tech tests to come out in like the next 50 years? I don't know. I honestly have no idea what it is that is holding it up, but... Like, I feel like that's a crime in and of itself. When every test has been performed and all the results that you need are right in front of you. Right, and it's the same thing over and over and over again. They don't have the, you know, heteroplasmy that Nicholas does. Their mitochondrial DNA is, you know, the same as most people's would be, uh, but for just the church won't take it. Seriously, all they need to do is test it against Alexandra. If it's a mitochondrial match, that's it. That is their mother. So unless Alexandra had some illegitimate children somewhere. (laughs) That Nicholas just happened to be aware of. Yeah, like, oh, two extra kids? Sounds good. Right? Those are Alexia and Maria. That's it. That they've done every single fucking test. Put them to rest, okay? The fact that you're keeping them somewhere away from their family when they were already for 75 years buried separately. Like, how can you do that? Like, a family that loved each other so much, like, they need to be together. Guys, thanks so much for hanging out with us on this episode of Dear World Love History. This brings us to the end of our Romanov series, and it has been a roller coaster of a topic. There have been all moments, frustrating ones, and downright heartbreaking ones. We are going to announce our next topic in just a moment, and we're really, really, really excited about this one. Although I don't think that's fair to say. We're always excited about our topics. Don't forget to check out our show notes for all five parts, four photos of the family and the people they came in contact with. Part four has some really great ones um, of, uh, weird to say it in that way, but some really um, interesting photos from their time in captivity. And some of them are even thought to be the final photos ever taken of them. Yeah, so. so definitely check out the show notes for photos. Absolutely. Quick reminder, we will be announcing our giveaway winner next episode, so there's no purchase necessary to enter. Just leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen and send us a snapshot on social media or by email. Two winners will get some pretty awesome-looking swag. Okay, on to recommendations. For books, I super recommend The Family Romanov by Candace Fleming. It's a really easy, quick read, but it gives you all the facts you need to know. And also the Romanov sisters, The Lost Lives of the Daughters of Nicholas and Alexandra by Helen Rappaport. Really wonderful look into the girls who are so, so often overlooked. Um, Anything by Helen Rappaport really is, you know, top notch. Um, I really recommend Robert K. Massey's book, So Nicholas and Alexandra, um, which that really gives you a really good insight into the relationship in the beginning. And you get to see the Morris people and not just, you know, 
a prince of Russia and a German princess. It's their love story and their love for their family and everything that was going on in their personal lives while Russia was kind of crumbling around them. Um, and it gives you more of an insight as to why they were the way they were. And I also recommend um, Robert K. Massey's Romanoff's The Final Chapter. I mean, my only issue with this book is the fact that it was written in the 90s, so it doesn't have complete information. Um, but it does give you a really good look at what was done after the massacre, you know, all the imposters, because there's so much information we did not include. And just a lot more to do with Anna Anderson, because that was, that was so much, so much. Um, but it's like, I would really love if he actually released an updated version with everything that happened post-1994, just because there were some tests that were being done that, like, he never got answers for and all of that. But still a really great read. Both are really easy to get through and super interesting. So read those if you ever have time. Yeah, I will say we didn't come across a dry read at all in all of our research. So, you know, that's kudos to the authors. Now, as for movies and TV shows, definitely, you know, obviously the animated 1997 film Anastasia. So not accurate at all. But it is a lot of fun. The music is awesome. And it's the story that, you know, should have been for Anastasia or any one of the family really to survive and live a life. But unfortunately, not the case. Now, we will call it more of an introduction to the Romanovs because, you know, like Rain, you know, CW's Rain about Mary Queen of Scots, it features people who were live, um, you know, back then. But that's really it. Just their names. And with some names under your belts, you might recognize who they are now in that opening number. We also recommend The Last Stars on Netflix, but please, 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 please don't take it as gospel. It's a docudrama, so some of it really has been over-dramatized, and some of it is inaccurate. Um, there's also The Romanoffs on Amazon Prime, but we haven't watched that one, so we don't really have anything to say about it. If you have watched it or do watch it, let us know what you think. We're curious to know. We'll include all of our recommendations with links in our show notes for part five. Also, speaking of the 1997 animated Anastasia film, we will be throwing an outlandish watch party on Saturday, October 26th, starting at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be live tweeting fun facts, reactions, and inner thoughts throughout the movie. As for our next topic, due out on November 2nd, the topic is Adrian, take it away. Jack the Ripper. This is another obsession of ours. Um, we talk about them a lot and the murders, and I think we're kind of obsessed with a little bit of everything, really, but that's okay. So we will catch you next time in Victorian London. Historians out. Did you know that a man once jumped into a bulletproof window so much that he busted it out of the frame and fell to his death? I do. Hey, I'm Nicholas Howe, and I made an improvised comedy storytelling podcast about this death and many others. Using a multiverse of me's as the catalyst, I explore the various ways people have died. I also have special guests on and freak them out about how dangerous the world is. Did you know lakes can explode? You do now. Listen to the How Will I Die podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at H-W-I-D-I-E-P-O-D.